Section 14 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 14. Near Oxford. A few days after our excursion to Blenheim, the same party set forth in two flies on a tour to some other places of interest in the neighborhood of Oxford. It was again a delightful day, and, in truth, every day of late had been so pleasant that it seemed as if each must be the very last of such perfect weather. And yet the long succession had given us confidence in as many more to come. The climate of England has been shamefully maligned. Its sulkiness and asperities are not nearly so offensive as Englishmen tell us, their climate being the only attribute of their country which they never overvalue. And the really good summer weather is the very kindest and sweetest that the world knows. We first drove to the village of Cumnor, about six miles from Oxford, and alighted at the entrance of the church. Here, while waiting for the keys, we looked at an old wall of the churchyard, piled up of loose grey stones, which are said to have once formed a portion of Cumnor Hall, celebrated in Mickle's Ballad and Scott's Romance. The hall must have been in very close vicinity to the church, not more than twenty yards off, and I waded through the long dewy grass of the churchyard, and tried to peep over the wall in hopes to discover some tangible and traceable remains of the edifice. But the wall was just too high to be overlooked, and difficult to clamber over without tumbling down some of the stones. So I took the word of one of our party, who had been here before, that there is nothing interesting on the other side. The churchyard is in rather a neglected state, and seems not to have been mown for the benefit of the parson's cow. It contains a good many gravestones, of which I remember only some upright memorials of slate to individuals of the name of Tabs. Soon a woman arrived with the key of the church door, and we entered the simple old edifice, which has the pavement of lettered tombstones, the sturdy pillars and low arches, and other ordinary characteristics of an English country church. One or two pews, probably those of the gentlefolk of the neighborhood, were better furnished than the rest, but all in a modest style. Near the high altar, in the holiest place, there is an oblong, angular, ponderous tomb of blue marble, built against the wall, and surmounted by a carved canopy of the same material, and over the tomb, and beneath the canopy, are two monumental brasses, such as we oftener see inlaid into a church pavement. On these brasses are engraved the figures of a gentleman in armor, and a lady in an antique garb each about a foot high, devoutly kneeling in prayer, and there is a long Latin inscription likewise cut into the enduring brass, bestowing the highest eulogies on the character of Anthony Forster, who, with his virtuous dame, lies buried beneath this tombstone. His is the knightly figure that kneels above, and if Sir Walter Scott ever saw this tomb, he must have had an even greater than common disbelief in laudatory epitaphs, to venture on depicting Anthony Forster in such lines as blacken him in the romance. For my part, I read the inscription in full faith, and believe the poor deceased gentleman to be a much-wronged individual, with good grounds for bringing an action of slander in the courts above. 
but the circumstance, lightly as we treat it, has its serious moral. What nonsense it is, this anxiety, which so worries us about our good fame or our bad fame after death. If it were of the slightest real moment, our reputations would have been placed by providence more in our own power, and less in other people's, than we now find them to be. If poor Anthony Forster happens to have met Sir Walter in the other world, I doubt whether he has ever thought it worth while to complain of the latter's misrepresentations. We did not remain long in the church, as it contains nothing else of interest, and driving through the village we passed a pretty large and rather antique-looking inn, bearing the sign of the bear and ragged staff. It could not be so old, however, by at least a hundred years, as Giles Gosling's time, nor is there any other object to remind the visitor of the Elizabethan age, unless it be a few ancient cottages that are perhaps of still earlier date. Cumnor is not nearly so large a village, nor a place of such mark as one anticipates from its romantic and legendary fame, but, being still inaccessible by railway, it has retained more of a sylvan character than we often find in English country towns. In this retired neighborhood the road is narrow and bordered with grass, and sometimes interrupted by gates. The hedges grow in unpruned luxuriance. There is not that close-shaven neatness and trimness that characterize the ordinary English landscape. The whole scene conveys the idea of seclusion and remoteness. We met no travellers, whether on foot or otherwise. I cannot very distinctly trace out this day's peregrinations, but, after leaving Cumnor a few miles behind us, I think we came to a ferry over the Thames, where an old woman served as ferryman, and pulled a boat across by means of a rope stretching from shore to shore. Our two vehicles being thus placed on either side, we resumed our drive, first glancing, however, at the old woman's antique cottage, with its stone floor, and the circular settle around the kitchen fireplace, which was quite in the medieval English style. We next stopped at Stanton Harcourt, where we were received at the parsonage with a hospitality which we should take delight in describing, if it were allowable to make public acknowledgment of the private and personal kindnesses which we never failed to find ready for our needs. An American in an English house will soon adopt the opinion that the English are the very kindest people on earth, and will retain that idea as long, at least, as he remains on the inner side of the threshold. Their magnetism is of a kind that repels strongly while you keep beyond a certain limit, but attracts as forcibly if you get within the magic line. It was at this place, if I remember right, that I heard a gentleman ask a friend of mine whether he was the author of the red letter A, and after some consideration, for he did not seem to recognize his own book at first under this improved title, our countryman responded, doubtfully, that he believed so. The gentleman proceeded to inquire whether our friend had spent much time in America, evidently thinking that he must have been caught young, and have had a tincture of English breeding, at least, if not birth, to speak the language so tolerably, and appear so much like other people. This insular narrowness is exceedingly queer, and of very frequent occurrence, and is quite as much a characteristic of men of education and culture as of clowns. 
Stanton Harcourt is a very curious old place. It was formerly the seat of the ancient family of Harcourt, which now has its principal abode at Newnham Courtney a few miles off. The parsonage is a relic of the family mansion, or castle, other portions of which are close at hand, for across the garden rise two grey towers, both of them picturesquely venerable, and interesting for more than their antiquity. One of these towers, in its entire capacity, from height to depth, constituted the kitchen of the ancient castle, and is still used for domestic purposes, although it has not, nor ever had a chimney. Or, we might rather say, it is itself one vast chimney, with a hearth of thirty feet square, and a flue and aperture of the same size. There are two huge fireplaces within, and the interior walls of the tower are blackened with the smoke that for centuries used to gush forth from them and climb upward, seeking an exit through some wide air-holes in the conical roof full seventy feet above. These lofty openings were capable of being so arranged with reference to the wind that the cooks are said to have been seldom troubled by the smoke, and here, no doubt, they were accustomed to roast oxen whole, with as little fuss and ado as a modern cook would roast a fowl. The inside of the tower is very dim and sombre, being nothing but rough stone walls, lighted only from the apertures above mentioned, and has still a pungent odour of smoke and soot, the reminiscence of the fires and feasts of generations that have passed away. Methinks the extremest range of domestic economy lies between an American cooking-stove and the ancient kitchen, seventy dizzy feet in height, and all one fireplace of Stanton Harcourt. Now, the place being without a parallel in England, and therefore necessarily beyond the experience of an American, it is somewhat remarkable that, while we stood gazing at this kitchen, I was haunted and perplexed by an idea that somewhere or other I had seen just this strange spectacle before. The height, the blackness, the dismal void before my eyes, seemed as familiar as the decorous neatness of my grandmother's kitchen. Only my unaccountable memory of the scene was lighted up with an image of lurid fires blazing round the dim interior circuit of the tower. I had never before had so pertinacious an attack, as I could not but suppose it, of that odd state of mind wherein we fitfully and teasingly remember some previous scene or incident, of which the one now passing appears to be but the echo and reduplication. Though the explanation of the mystery did not for some time occur to me, I may as well conclude the matter here. In a letter of Pope's, addressed to the Duke of Buckingham, there is an account of Stanton Harcourt, as I now find, though the name is not mentioned, where he resided while translating a part of the Iliad. It is one of the most admirable pieces of description in the language, playful and picturesque, with fine touches of humorous pathos, and conveys as perfect a picture as ever was drawn of a decayed English country house, and among other rooms, most of which have since crumbled down and disappeared, he dashes off the grim aspect of this kitchen, which, moreover, he peoples with witches, engaging Satan himself as head cook, who stirs the infernal cauldrons that seethe and bubble over the fires. This letter, and others relative to his abode here, were very familiar to my early reading, 
and remaining still fresh at the bottom of my memory, caused the weird and ghostly sensation that came over one on beholding the real spectacle that had formerly been made so vivid to my imagination. Our next visit was to the church which stands close by, and is quite as ancient as the remnants of the castle. In a chapel or side-aisle dedicated to the Harcourts are found some very interesting family monuments, and among them recumbent on a tombstone the figure of an armed knight of the Lancastrian party who was slain in the Wars of the Roses. His features, dress, and armor are painted in colors, still wonderfully fresh, and there still blushes the symbol of the red rose, denoting the faction for which he fought and died. His head rests on a marble or alabaster helmet, and on the tomb lies the veritable helmet, it is to be presumed, which he wore in battle, a ponderous iron case, with the visor complete, and remnants of the gilding that once covered it. The crest is a large peacock, not of metal but of wood. Very possibly this helmet was but a heraldic adornment of his tomb, and, indeed, it seems strange that it has not been stolen before now, especially in Cromwell's time, when knightly tombs were little respected, and when armor was in request. However, it is needless to dispute with the dead knight about the identity of his iron pot, and we may as well allow it to be the very same that so often gave him the headache in his lifetime. Leaning against the wall at the foot of the tomb is the shaft of a spear, with a woefully tattered and utterly faded banner appended to it, the knightly banner beneath which he marshalled his followers in the field. As it was absolutely falling to pieces, I tore off one little bit, no bigger than a fingernail, and put it into my waistcoat pocket, but seeking it subsequently it was not to be found. On the opposite side of the little chapel, two or three yards from this tomb, is another monument on which lie side by side one of the same knightly race of Harcourts and his lady. The tradition of the family is that this knight was the standard-bearer of Henry of Richmond in the Battle of Bosworth Field, and a banner, supposed to be the same that he carried, now droops over his effigy. It is just such a colorless silk rag as the one already described. The knight has the order of the garter on his knee, and the lady wears it on her left arm, an odd place enough for a garter, but, if worn in its proper locality, it could not be decorously visible. The complete preservation and good condition of these statues, even to the minutest adornment of the sculpture, and their very noses, the most vulnerable part of a marble man as of a living one, are miraculous. Except in Westminster Abbey, among the chapels of the kings, I have seen none so well preserved— Perhaps they owe it to the loyalty of Oxfordshire, diffused throughout its neighborhood by the influence of the university during the great civil war and the rule of the Parliament. It speaks well, too, for the upright and kindly character of this old family, that the peasantry, among whom they had lived for ages, did not desecrate their tombs when it might have done with impunity. There are other and more recent memorials of the Harcourts, one of which is the tomb of the last lord, who died about a hundred years ago. His figure, like those of his ancestors, lies on the top of his tomb, clad not in armor, but in his robes as a peer. The title is now extinct, 
but the family survives in a younger branch, and still holds this patrimonial estate, though they have long since quitted it as a residence. We next went to see the ancient fish-ponds appertaining to the mansion, and which used to be of a vast dietary importance to the family in Catholic times, and when fish was not otherwise attainable. There are two or three or more of these reservoirs, one of which is of very respectable size, large enough indeed to be really a picturesque object with its grass-green borders and the trees drooping over it, and the towers of the castle and the church reflected within the weed-grown depths of its smooth mirror. A sweet fragrance, as it were, of ancient time and present quiet and seclusion, was breathing all around. The sunshine of to-day had a mellow charm of antiquity in its brightness. These ponds are said still to breed abundance of such fish as love deep and quiet waters, but I only saw some minnows and one or two snakes which were lying among the weeds on the top of the water, sunning and bathing themselves at once. I mentioned that there were two towers remaining of the old castle, the one containing the kitchen we have already visited, the other still more interesting is next to be described. It is some seventy feet high, gray and reverend, but in excellent repair, though I could not perceive that anything had been done to renovate it. The basement story was once the family chapel, and is, of course, still a consecrated spot. At one corner of the tower is a circular turret, within which a narrow staircase, with worn steps of stone, winds round and round as it climbs upward, giving access to a chamber on each floor, and finally emerging on the battlemented roof. Ascending this turret stair, and arriving at the third story, we entered a chamber, not large, though occupying the whole area of the tower, and lighted by a window on each side. It was wainscoted from floor to ceiling with dark oak, and had a little fireplace in one of the corners. The window-panes were small and set in lead. The curiosity of this room is that it was once the residence of Pope, and that he here wrote a considerable part of the translation of Homer, and likewise, no doubt, the admirable letters to which I have referred above. The room once contained a record by himself, scratched with a diamond on one of the window-panes, since removed for safekeeping to Newnham Courtney where it was shown me, purporting that he had here finished the fifth book of the Iliad on such a day. A poet has a fragrance about him, such as no other human being is gifted withal. It is indestructible, and clings forevermore to everything that he has touched. I was not impressed at Blenheim with any sense that the mighty duke still haunted the palace that was created for him, but here, after a century and a half, we are still conscious of the presence of that decrepit little figure of Queen Anne's time, although he was merely a casual guest in the old tower during one or two summer months. However brief the time and slight the connection, his spirit cannot be exorcised so long as the tower stands. In my mind, moreover, Pope, or any other person with an available claim, is right in adhering to the spot, dead or alive, for I never saw a chamber that I should like better to inhabit, so comfortably small, in such a safe and inaccessible seclusion, and with a varied landscape from each window. One of them looks upon the church close at hand, and down into the green churchyard, extending almost to the foot of the tower. The others have views wide and far, 
over a gently undulating tract of country. If desirous of a loftier elevation, about a dozen or more steps of the turret stair will bring the occupant to the summit of the tower, where Pope used to come, no doubt, in the summer evenings, and peep, poor little shrimp that he was, through the embrasures of the battlement. From Stanton Harcourt we drove, I forget how far, to a point where a boat was waiting for us on the Thames, or some other stream, for I am ashamed to confess my ignorance of the precise geographical whereabout. We were, at any rate, some miles above Oxford, and, I should imagine, pretty near one of the sources of England's mighty river. It was little more than wide enough for the boat, with extended oars, to pass, shallow too, and bordered with bulrushes and water-weeds, which, in some places, quite overgrew the surface of the river from bank to bank. The shores were flat and meadow-like, and sometimes, the boatmen told us, are overflowed by the rise of the stream. The water looked clean and pure, but not particularly transparent, though enough so to show us that the bottom is very much weed-grown, and I was told that the weed is an American production, brought to England with importations of timber, and now threatening to choke up the Thames and other English rivers. I wonder it does not try its obstructive powers upon the Merrimack, the Connecticut, or the Hudson, not to speak of the St. Lawrence or the Mississippi. It was an open boat with cushioned seats astern, comfortably accommodating our party. The day continued sunny and warm and perfectly still. The boatman, well trained to his business, managed the oars skillfully and vigorously, and we went down the stream quite as swiftly as it was desirable to go, the scene being so pleasant and the passing hours so thoroughly agreeable. The river grew a little wider and deeper, perhaps, as we glided on, but was still an inconsiderable stream, for it had a good deal more than a hundred miles to meander through before it should bear fleets on its bosom, and reflect palaces and towers and parliament houses and dingy and sordid piles of various structure, as it rolled to and fro with the tide, dividing London asunder. Not, in truth, that I ever saw any edifice whatever reflected in its turbid breast, when the sylvan stream, as we beheld it now, is swollen into the Thames at London. Once on our voyage we had to land, while the boatmen and some other persons drew our skiff around some rapids, which we could not otherwise have passed. Another time the boat went through a lock. We, meanwhile, stepped ashore to examine the ruins of the old nunnery of Godstow, where fair Rosamond secluded herself, after being separated from her royal lover. There is a long line of a ruinous wall, and a shattered tower at one of the angles, the whole much ivy-grown, brimming over indeed with clustering ivy, which is rooted inside of the walls. The nunnery is now, I believe, held in lease by the city of Oxford, which has converted its precincts into a barnyard. The gate was under lock and key, so that we could merely look at the outside, and soon resumed our places in the boat. At three o'clock or thereabouts, or sooner or later, for I took little heed of time, and only wished that these delightful wanderings might last forever, we reached Folly Bridge at Oxford. Here we took possession of a spacious barge, with a house in it, 
and a comfortable dining-room or drawing-room within the house, and a level roof on which we could sit at ease, or dance if so inclined. These barges are common at Oxford, some very splendid ones being owned by the students of the different colleges or by clubs. They are drawn by horses like canal-boats, and a horse being attached to our own barge, he trotted off at a reasonable pace, and we slipped through the water behind him, with a gentle and pleasant motion, which, save for the constant vicissitude of cultivated scenery, was like no motion at all. It was life without the trouble of living. Nothing was ever more quietly agreeable. In this happy state of mind and body we gazed at Christ Church Meadows, as we passed, and at the receding spires and towers of Oxford, and on a good deal of pleasant variety along the banks, young men rowing or fishing, troops of naked boys bathing, as if this were Arcadia, in the simplicity of the Golden Age, country houses, cottages, waterside inns, all with something fresh about them, as not being sprinkled with the dust of the highway. We were a large party now, for a number of additional guests had joined us at Folly Bridge, and we comprised poets, novelists, scholars, sculptors, painters, architects, men and women of renown, dear friends, genial, outspoken, open-hearted Englishmen, all voyaging onward together like the wise ones of Gotham in a bowl. I remember not a single annoyance, except indeed that a swarm of wasps came aboard of us and alighted on the head of one of our young gentlemen, attracted by the scent of the pomatum which he had been rubbing into his hair. He was the only victim, and his small trouble the one little flaw in our day's felicity, to put us in mind that we were mortal. Meanwhile a table had been laid in the interior of our barge, and spread with cold ham, cold fowl, cold pigeon pie, cold beef, and other substantial cheer, such as the English love, and Yankees too, besides tarts and cakes and pears and plums, not forgetting, of course, a goodly provision of port, sherry, and champagne, and bitter ale, which is like mother's milk to an Englishman, and soon grows equally acceptable to his American cousin. By the time these matters had been properly attended to, we had arrived at that part of the Thames which passes by Newnham Courtney, a fine estate belonging to the Harcourts, and the present residence of the family. Here we landed, and, climbing a steep slope from the riverside, paused a moment or two to look at an architectural object called the Carfax, the purport of which I do not well understand. Thence we proceeded onward, through the loveliest park and woodland scenery I ever saw, and under as beautiful a declining sunshine as heaven ever shed over earth, to the stately mansion-house. As we here cross a private threshold, it is not allowable to pursue my feeble narrative of this delightful day with the same freedom as heretofore. So, perhaps, I may as well bring it to a close. I may mention, however, that I saw the library, a fine large apartment, hung round with portraits of eminent literary men, especially of the last century, most of whom were familiar guests of the Harcourts. 
The house itself is about eighty years old, and is built in the classic style, as if the family had been anxious to diverge as far as possible from the Gothic picturesqueness of their old abode at Stanton Harcourt. The grounds were laid out in part by Capability Brown, and seemed to me even more beautiful than those of Blenheim. Mason the poet, a friend of the house, gave the design of a portion of the garden. Of the whole place I will not be niggardly of my rude transatlantic praise, but be bold to say that it appeared to me as perfect as anything earthly can be, utterly and entirely finished, as if the years and generations had done all that the hearts and minds of the successive owners could contrive for a spot they dearly loved. Such homes as Newnham Courtney are among the splendid results of long hereditary possession and we Republicans, whose households melt away like new-fallen snow in a spring morning, must content ourselves with our many counterbalancing advantages, for this one, so apparently desirable to the far-projecting selfishness of our nature, we are certain never to attain. It must not be supposed, nevertheless, that Newnham Courtney is one of the great show-places of England. It is merely a fair specimen of the better class of country seats, and has a hundred rivals and many superiors in the features of beauty and expansive manifold redundant comfort which most impressed me. A moderate man might be content with such a home, that is all. And now I take leave of Oxford, without even an attempt to describe it, there being no literary faculty, attainable or conceivable by me, which can avail to put it adequately, or even tolerably, upon paper." It must remain its own sole expression, and those whose sad fortune it may be never to behold it have no better resource than to dream about grey, weather-stained, ivy-grown edifices, wrought with quaint Gothic ornament, and standing around grassy quadrangles, where cloistered walks have echoed to the quiet footsteps of twenty generations, lawns and gardens of luxurious repose, shadowed with canopies of foliage, and lit up with sunny glimpses through archways of great boughs. Spires, towers, and turrets, each with its history and legend, dimly magnificent chapels, with painted windows of rare beauty and brilliantly diversified hues, creating an atmosphere of richest gloom. Vast college halls, high-windowed, oaken-panelled, and hung round with portraits of the men in every age whom the university has nurtured to be illustrious. Long vistas of alcoved libraries, where the wisdom and learned folly of all time is shelved. Kitchens, we throw in this feature by way of ballast, and because it would not be English Oxford without its beef and beer, with huge fireplaces, capable of roasting a hundred joints at once, and cavernous cellars, where rows of piled-up hogsheads seethe and fume with that mighty malt liquor which is the true milk of alma mater. Make all these things vivid in your dream, and you will never know nor believe how inadequate is the result to represent even the merest outside of Oxford. We feel a genuine reluctance to conclude this article without making our grateful acknowledgments by name to a gentleman whose overflowing kindness was the main condition of all our sight-scenes and enjoyments. 
delightful as will always be our recollection of Oxford and its neighborhood, we partly suspect that it owes much of its happy coloring to the genial medium through which the objects were presented to us, to the kindly magic of a hospitality unsurpassed within our experience in the quality of making the guest contented with his host, with himself, and everything about him. He has inseparably mingled his image with our remembrance of the spires of Oxford. End of section 14